Good morning. Let's open in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as you bring us together today, let us share with each other how you work in each of our lives, each way individually, each one telling us how we can be of service to you and showing us who you are. But, but Lord, you also want us to be together, to be, a fam to be your family. So as your family, we're here and we invite in the Holy Spirit and we ask that the message that Mike brings today gives us new insight, new understanding as we want to be learning all the time more about you. This we ask in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if we have no further announcements, let's worship our Lord. Good morning, everybody. Full surrender. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. A police sergeant once asked Billy Graham the secret of a victorious Christian living. I told him, or he, Billy told him, that it was no magical formula, but if any one word could describe it, it would be surrender. You may ask, how can I surrender my life? It is the surrender in the same way that salvation comes to the sinner. There needs to be a confession of sin and a complete yielding of every area of our lives, personalities, and our wills to Jesus Christ, plus faith that Jesus will accept that commitment. It is not enough for us to be confirmed or make a decision for Christ at an altar. We cannot walk successfully in the glow of that experience for the rest of our lives. We need to return and renew our vows and covenants with the Lord. We need to take inventory and have regular spiritual checkups. And Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Daily surrender, that's the key to daily victory. The hope for today, God doesn't make it difficult uh, for us to come to him. Fighting takes more than energy than surrendering. How often do we experience pain and endure <coughs> suffering because we have failed simply just to surrender to the love of God? If you'd like to stand and join us, put on the garment of praise. Put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Lift up your voice to God. Praise with the spirit and with understanding. Oh, magnify the
encouragement and promise. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers and under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler you shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands you shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra. The young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. If you would stand with me, we can recite the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Oh, you're so strange. 
Testament reading today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 51 through 58. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread, which I will offer so the world may live, is my flesh. Then the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they asked. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. I live because of the living Father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna but will live forever. We have a responsive reading. That's the way I find it. think about it at times, too. 
<laughs> Lord, because you have made me, I owe you the whole of my life. Because you have redeemed me, I owe you the whole of my life. Because you have promised so much, I owe you my whole being. Moreover, I owe you as much more love than myself. You are greater than me for whom you gave yourself and to whom you promised yourself. Pray that you, Lord, make me taste my love, taste my knowledge. Let me know by love what I know by understanding. I owe you more than my whole self, but I have no more. And by myself, I cannot render the whole of it to you. Talk to me, Lord, in the fullness of your love. I am wholly yours by creation. Make me all yours, too, in love. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you call on it. You've given us so much, given us this, your son to die so that our sins may get, be forgiven. You have created the whole universe, and we know that all belongs to you. But you have entrusted each, each one of us with, with certain parts, and you call on us to give back. You call on us to, to recognize those gifts and to share them with others and to share your word and to share the love that you have shared with us. So we ask that the gifts we give today be blessed for that purpose. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Gardens Church. It's good to be back. It's been uh, it's been too long since we we're here uh, last time, uh, and just every time I come, just uh, I'm overwhelmed by how this church comes together as a church, how you pray for one another, um, and just your just uh, abandoned sense of of love and and devotion and worship to God. So thank you for for just demonstrating that to me. Uh, it's beautiful to see, and thank you for having me here today. Uh, so funny story, um, this is Friday afternoon, I had just, I was putting the finishing touches on uh, the Word version of, uh, of my sermon that I then used to go put into the PowerPoint presentation. I was at the very tail end, I only had, uh, I had the rest of my outline done, I just needed to put meat on the bones, and I hit save on my document and I, I walked away for or two just to go talk with my wife. I came back literally like one or two minutes later to the awesome sight of my baby boy, Jonathan, sitting at my chair, banging away at the keys on my computer. But I saved the file, so it's okay. So I go through, and, and I'm closing all of the dozens of windows that my son opened up on the computer. And I go, and I open up my sermon. Six pages. Gone. <laughs> all that's left is uh, period, period, back, uh, uh, backslash, period, backslash, save. 
So I, I consulted the Oracle, Google, on how to pull up previous saved copies of files that have been overwritten. Tried three different methods of attacking that, and all three of them didn't work. So it's about 45 hours ago, I started over uh, again on this, um, which is good. I'm going to take that as uh, God saying to me, all right, that first attempt, Michael, that, that was cute. <laughs> Go do it again. Uh, and it's probably a message that he wanted uh, to reside a little deeper in my heart and my mind as well. Um, so yeah, <laughs> here, here we are today. Um, so from uh, what I gather from Frank, the, the last few weeks, uh, you guys here at Desert Gardens, uh, you've been going through a teaching series here about the purposes for the church, uh, bringing glory to God through worship, being a disciple and making disciples. And now I've, I have the humbling and the exciting opportunity to continue this teaching now in the direction of evangelism. This topic is so central to Christianity, it's kind of hard to see where, uh, so closely entwined with our faith that it becomes hard to see where one aspect of it ends and the other begins. The Apostle Paul illustrates this well in his second letter to the church in Corinth uh, that he planted. Please join me in reading the words of the true and living God. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Would you pray with me, please? Uh, Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your glorious character and, and nature. God, we thank you for this day of life that you have given us and this time that you have given us, this opportunity to come together as brothers and sisters united in Christ and be able to spend time in fellowship and worship of you and to glean from the fields that is uh, your word today. God, I pray that uh, as I prepare this message, or as I deliver this message that you have prepared for me, uh, God, I pray that at the end of this, there would be nothing of me left here that would be memorable. God, I pray that I would decrease in this place, that you would increase. God, use your word here to encourage your church, to embolden your church, to show us the amazing blessings that you have given for us, the place that you have for us in your redemptive plan. And God, lift up this church to honor and glorify your son. Amen.
Okay, so this passage, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21, is incredibly rich in content. Paul uses the word therefore three times within seven verses. So it shows you this interwoven nature where multiple times the text folds back in on itself to reinforce another point. So I think if we, if we take in a close examination of these areas, I think that there's three key points that come to light. And the first one is a clear presentation of the gospel. He says in verse 14, one has died for all, therefore all have died. No. Quick sidebar, this whole part of, uh, of the scripture, at first blush, can be somewhat confusing to read. We have one died for all, therefore all have died, but then he references, but wait, those who are still alive. So take a step back. What he's really saying here is that one has died for all. Christ died in our place. Therefore, from God's perspective, all of sinful humanity has died. Because Jesus, as our representative, did that for us. One has died, therefore all have died according to God's sense of justice. But there are those that still remain, and that is us right now in the church, the redeemed church here. So, one has died for all, therefore all has died. That's the beginning verse. The last verse, the book ends here. And he says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In these two verses, Paul links together this causal relationship between sin and death, as well as the remedy for both of them. Uh, this is uh, something similar that he spoke of in his letter to the church in Rome when he said, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Captured in these two verses is a critical truth, that there is no talk of reconciliation of God or of peaceful and rewarding afterlife without the mention of sin. Jesus did not shy away from calling out sin when he saw it. Neither did John the Baptist, and he lost his head for it. Neither did Stephen. Neither did Paul. And neither should we when we share the good news. Now, I'm right there with you. This is talking about sin in our culture now. This is definitely an uncomfortable message to speak of. It's especially true when our culture often views truth as not something that is external and objective. Rather, we tend to view truth as something that is inside. It's internal and it's subjective. If I feel it, it must be true. Follow your heart and... Love means affirming what I feel is true. These are the doctrines of today's culture. These are the Asherahs and the high places of our culture's religion. These doctrines are false. They are based upon a false premise, and they must be challenged when we minister the good news of Jesus. Happy for us, our message also as good news to provide as well. Remember, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so back to our text. Paul then uh, becomes much more specific. His verbiage at this point changes from this ambiguous mention of one and many, and now he talks about the specific person of Jesus, and he links Jesus' death and resurrection 
to appeasing God the Father's sense of justice. We get this in verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them. The de- <laughs> Paul is emphasizing here, the death of Jesus was no accident. It was not a sad and tragic end to a passionate teacher. This was God the Father exercising both his characteristics of justice and mercy to their fullest extent. Paul said that God did this so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we have a clear presentation of the gospel. Uh, Come on. Sorry, my iPad is having fun right now. Uh, Yep, uh, next. We have the transforming effect of the gospel on the believer. Uh, Really, the orbit of our lives changes here. Uh, We get from verse 14 and 15, for the love of Christ controls us. We no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I like to think of this in, in terms of, uh, of astronomy. You know, it, since the mid-1500s, or up until the 1500s, the world of astronomy and philosophy, after the, it was turned upside down when a Polish astronomer and mathematician by the name of Nicholas Copernicus demonstrated evidence for a totally different way of looking at our solar system. The prevailing wisdom at this time was that the Earth was the center of the solar system. And not just the solar system, the entire universe all revolved around the Earth. And this is a theory that had been around in scientific and and mathematical arguments going back to the Greek scientist Ptolemy in the second century. So for 1,300 years, this is the prevailing wisdom in how we viewed our world. Copernicus demonstrated that it's actually the sun that's at the center, and we revolve around the sun. And the incoming scientific revolution that happened after this discovery also gives us the understanding that not only is the sun at the center, the earth is orbiting around it, but the movements of the earth through the heavens are actually dictated and guided by the immense mass of the sun. So the same thing that can be said about our lives when we turn from a life of rebellion against God and towards Christ, the orbit of our lives change. Our lives revolve around and are moved by Jesus. We also see in this passage here that we are made new. Um, Hold on. I think we got slightly off, but I can do this here. Calling of the believer to share the gospel. Go back one now, I think. One quick second, please. Oh, yes, we view. All right. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. All right, so we are made new. Uh, We get this from verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Saving faith does not merely make a bad person a good person. It's so much more. 
See, as we talk about from God's view, a sinner who comes to Christ has had all of his misdeeds, past and future, nailed to that cross along with the other two criminals. What now stands in the place of that sinner who put his faith in Christ is the sinless and righteous life earned by Jesus. We are washed, but we are not just washed. We are made new. And with this, we we view people differently. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. What Paul is saying here is that we no longer view people according to worldly standards and values as if one person's present physical life is all that matters. We see people in light of eternity now, and we see it in two different ways. One, they're either a new creation in Christ, our spiritual brothers and sisters, or we see them as lost without Christ. And with Christ-like compassion, we desire to see them become new creations as well. We see this echoed in, uh, in Jesus' own words here uh, in Matthew 9. Uh, it says, when, when Jesus saw the crowds, that he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. This part of this, this longer verse, it emphasizes how, how Jesus viewed those who presently weren't his with a, a gut-wrenching compassion. And then Jesus, uh, the passage continues, and Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The second part of this verse shows that Jesus intends to use his people, his church, for the task of bringing the lost to him rather than him doing itself directly. And this brings us to the third point from this message. Um, is the calling of the believer to share the gospel to those who do not know or do not presently abide in it. Uh, verse 18, Christ reconciled us to himself and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, he has entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So, brothers and sisters, do you see how closely entwined all of these aspects of our faith are? Our faith is not a work of ours, something that we have achieved by ourselves so that we can boast. It's not an inheritance that we are born into. Quite the opposite, actually. Scripture says that we are born as children of wrath. Jesus says that we must be born again in order to become children of God. This faith that we have, it's a free gift from God given to us at a time when we least deserved it. And this gift changes us. It breaks us out of our bondage to sin and tethers us to Jesus. And now in this new relationship with Jesus, we are tasked with a ministry, an act of service. We are equipped for this task with a message. And we are named as ambassadors for Christ, bringing the message to those who like our past selves, or enemies to God. Okay, so what does it mean to evangelize? We haven't even brought up the word evangelism or evangelize at this point. So to understand this, let's take a look uh, at a scene in Acts chapter 11. This is 19 through 21. And this scene is particularly valuable as we not only see 
the definition of the term evangelism being used, but we also see its result. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking, uh, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. So there's this pers persecution going on. These members of the church, they're bringing the good news out, but they're only preaching it to Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, the Greeks, the Gentiles as well, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The Greek word, uh, word used in here for, yeah, in verse 20, for preaching the Lord Jesus is euangelizo. It means literally to bring good news, to announce good tidings. And you can kind of see from the translation, the English transliteration of it there, it's the root word, it's where we get evangelism from. It comes directly from a transliteration, taking this word out of the Greek and putting it into our language. So when you look at the, the context of this verse, we see that the meaning of the word evangelize is to bring the good news about Jesus. It's what they were doing, preaching the Lord Jesus. In fact, some of your Bibles, uh, NIV is a good example, may show this verse a little more precisely, saying, quote, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. It really is that simple. So, how does one evangelize? Well, we just do the definition of what the word means. We take the good news of Jesus to those who do not know it or presently abide in it. This is what Paul meant back in uh, 2 Corinthians 5 when he said we have been trusted with the message of reconciliation. Paul further emphasizes the importance of both the message and the ministry of reconciliation in Romans 10 when he said, how will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in him of who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Now oftentimes, when I think of evangelism, and I think many people do as well, we tend to associate this with, uh, with images in our head of mission work, of traveling to far-off countries to bring the word to the people who have never heard it. And with this, the question often comes up, do I have to go? And the answer for some clearly is yes. If that is what God calls you to do, it certainly was the calling for Paul and for an untold number of people that are right now living out this ministry of reconciliation far from where they started. But also the answer for many is no. There's a beautiful story of local evangelism in Acts chapter 8 when the Holy Spirit prompts Philip to go evangelize to someone literally just down the street from him. Uh, and it resulted in faith and baptizing. I'll leave that one for your own private studies. Acts chapter 8, Philip and the eunuch. It's a beautiful story there. The important thing here is that we live lives in such a manner that anticipates 
and is prepared to respond to opportunities that God provides us to share the gospel, whether they're in the next state, country, city, or inside our own families and friends. Okay, so in a series of purposes for the church, I'd be remiss if I didn't speak a little bit as to the purpose of evangelism. So number one, and probably chiefly the most important thing, is we are living in obedience to God. Jesus commanded us in three of the Gospels, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, um, that we are to take the good news to all the nations. And Paul, as we just read it earlier in 2 Corinthians, we are new creations in Christ Jesus. We are gripped by his love. We no longer live for ourselves, but we live for his will and not ours. And he clearly, in three of the Gospels, commanded us to share this news. Secondly, we see that souls are saved from hell, and they're reunited with God. Uh, James 5, um, the half-brother, or yeah, the half-brother of Jesus says, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Paul, in his letter to the church in Ephesus, says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So why do we evangelize? We do it because souls are saved from hell and they are reunited in life, in spiritual life with Christ. Now our culture wants to pretend that Either God doesn't exist, or our culture wants to remake him into an image that would never turn anybody away. The truth, however, is quite different. The Bible clearly states in multiple places that there is no path towards peace with God other than Jesus. Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. John 14, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then in Acts 4, we see, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So, for someone to have peace with God, to enjoy this peace with God, this eternal life with them, they must know Jesus. And for someone to know Jesus, they must be told about him by people who are passionately pursuing him. All right, thirdly, we see that in purpose for evangelism, it's the method, it is how the church grows. We see this multiple times throughout the book of Acts, but I think it's probably most clearly expressed in chapter 11. Now those, uh, yeah, that we had gone over earlier, so uh, now those who were scattered because of the persecution over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, but there were some of them who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the, the, <laughs> preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. We see here the church group because faithful people preaching the Lord Jesus, Galizo, they were evangelizing 
And we see the result. The church grew. A great number believed and turned to the Lord. Now, I know for many, myself included, the, the concept of evangelizing people sounds scary and daunting. So it is my hope to wrap up this sermon with a couple of, a po- a couple of points of encouragement in this area. First, there is a difference between proof and persuasion. Proof is evidence. It is logical, consistent argumentation. Persuasion is the changing of someone's mind. We are called to provide proof, a reasoned defense for the hope that is within us, as Peter described it. It is not our calling, or I'd argue even within our power, to persuade a heart that is in a state of rebellion against God. We are called to bring proof, not persuade people. And that is because, number two, it is God who uses his word and the Holy Spirit to renew hearts and reconcile people to him. Jesus illustrates this beautifully in, uh, in the parable of the seed growing. This is uh, Mark chapter 4. He had already gone over the parable of, uh, of the soils, where the seeds are planted in different types of soil. This is after that, the parable of the seed growing. Mark 4, 26 through 30. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces it by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Notice that the farmer has no idea how the seed sprouted. (laughs) It happened by itself. The Greek word here is automatos, where we get automatic. It happened automatically. It means being moved by one's own impulse, acting without the instigation or the intervention of another. John MacArthur said of this verse, in relation to evangelism, we are to sow and go to bed. Jesus explains elsewhere in this chapter, uh, in the early parable, um, that the seed that was sown was the word of God, and the earth represents the state of the hearer's heart. So to summarize these, we are called to provide proof, not to persuade. We couldn't persuade if we wanted to. That is God's sovereign territory of being able to uh, tend to people's hearts so that his word can grow in them. Paul gives a a beautiful practical example of this in 1 Corinthians, where he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So again, we offer proof. We plant the seed, but it is God who tends to the heart and uses his message of reconciliation to persuade people. So, quick sidebar. Funny thought with all of these gardening examples or analogies. Um, And to kind of, so when Mary encounters the risen Jesus outside of the tomb, her eyes are full of tears because she thinks some grave robbers have come and taken her Lord's body away. 
Now to give a little bit of context on this, so I know I'm on a sidebar, I'm now doing a sidebar to the sidebar, I apologize. Um, so quick note just for context, Jew Jewish burial process. Um, when someone, when a Jew dies, they were put in a tomb. That's 100% true, but that was not their final resting place. They were put on a stone slab in the tomb, and over the period of a year, the body would decompose. After a year, the family, the next of kin, would get access to the tomb, and all that would be left are bones. The family would collect the bones, and they would put them in a box called an ossuary. These ossuaries sometimes held one, two, or three people, three generations worth of people there, and those would be then stored in a family crypt, so all of these boxes of bones there. And we know this because there have been archaeological finds of these throughout ancient Jerusalem, even all the way up to Caiaphas's high priest family tomb. And inside his family tomb, going through some of these ossuaries, we have found foot bones with nails still embedded in them. And it's a, it's a fascinating find because it provides evidence for the historicity of Jews being crucified in the very time and location as Jesus. So Mary would have, let's get back to the story here. So Mary would have fully expected this whole process, tomb, ossuary, crypt, to take place for Jesus as a way of honoring the dead. So when she goes and she sees that the tomb is empty, it means that this whole process of honoring the dead can't happen. It's devastating for Mary. So she weeps. So through her teary eyes, she comes out. She's face to face with Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. She mistakes him for the gardener. So I think it's funny going through all these different gardening analogies that when, she, when Mary comes out and, and, and encounters the risen Jesus, she thinks he's the gardener. Anywho, I think it's funny. Um, thirdly, so back to um, the, this uh, encouragement in evangelism. Uh, we also, we have the unfathomable honor of being the means by which God uses to reconcile lost people to him. Remember what Paul said back in, in our chapter here, Second uh, Corinthians 5. This is God making his appeal through us. And this is a profound blessing for those who partake in the ministry of reconciliation. And I think that it's one we're not fully going to be able to grasp on this side of eternity. <clears throat> Lastly, the church plays an integral part in God's plan of reconciliation. The role of the church, you, Desert Gardens, myself, in spreading God's word is part of a much larger, glorious plan that is laid out throughout Scripture. So I've tried to put this together. I don't know how well this will come out. So follow me here. Genesis 12, we have God's promise to Abraham of land and offspring. Genesis 26, God's promise to Isaac, Abraham's son, that from this offspring will come a blessing to all nations. In Matthew 1 and Luke 3, we have genealogies linking Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way down to Jesus, the blessing. In Matthew 28 and in our text today of 2 Corinthians, we see the church being tasked to bring the good news of this blessing to all nations. And in Psalm 110 and Hebrews 13, we see all nations being made a footstool for Jesus. 
So this calling, this ministry of evangelism, this message that we are given, it's not just something that we, we are called and told to do in a localized version of our time and history right now. It certainly has its place there, but as you, I hope what you can see, this is God's plan that stretches across time. We evangelize because we are commanded to and because we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Christ. We evangelize because we have compassion for the lost and we long to see souls saved from hell. We evangelize because it is the means by which the church grows, and we evangelize because it is God's plan, stretched across time to reconcile lost humanity to the honor and glory of our Lord Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for this church and for this day. I thank you for the opportunity for us to come and enjoy each other's presence and to read from your word today. God, I pray a blessing of encouragement over every person who's here in the church um, today and all of those who are part of this body but aren't here today, God, that you would show them the path that you would have for them, that you would give them boldness and character, that you would put a, uh, a, a, strong, um, a strong reasoned defense, a strong apologetic in our hearts and our minds. And that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our ears to the opportunities that you give us to be part of this blessing and to share the good news that you have done with your son on our behalf through all of the nations so that Jesus may be glorified. Amen. And lastly, brothers and sisters, uh, the church is made up of God's chosen laborers and his harvest. So with that, I leave with you uh, this benediction from 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Thank you, guys. If you'd like to stand and join us, Lord, I want to be a Christian. <clears throat> Bye.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for learning more and teaching us the roots of evangelism and how you would have us go out, how you would have us always be a representative for you, not afraid to share your word, being joyful, and just as you were able to forgive us from our sins through your Son, that we can share that great good, that great news together with others, that being part of your family gives us life forever. This we, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.